0: Where's Jim Clark? I don't see a bright blue sweater out there. Is Jim not here today? Oh, they, oh he's got a dark blue sweater. Okay, he's kind of low-profile. Okay, I see. The Jayhawks beat the Cowboys yesterday in a nail-biter, so I expected to, to see Jim in, in his Jayhawk blue today. But anyway, it's good to see everybody here. It's a blessing to gather, and I hope that as we've worshipped and encouraged one another, uh, now we're looking into a time... Uh, where we'll study God's Word. Turn to Mark chapter 1 if you're not there already. For those of you visiting, or perhaps you just haven't been here, we began on January 5th, two weeks ago, a study of the Gospel of Mark. And this is to be a year-long sermon series, and I've titled the series, King Jesus, because Mark goes to great lengths, I believe, to display Jesus, the Messiah, as King. And if you've studied Mark before, you know that some say that Mark is all about Jesus as servant. And, that, and that's true. Jesus is displayed as a servant in the book of Mark. And others would say it's the suffering of Jesus that Mark really dials in on. And, and that's true, too. His, his suffering is a major theme, particularly in the last half of the book. But Mark is perfe- purposefully setting the servanthood of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus up against the authority of Jesus as king. Jesus is king. And the first century world would know nothing of a servant king. The lines between slave and king were very thick, but Jesus is both servant and king. The first century would know nothing of a suffering king. The Roman Caesars, be it Augustus or Nero or Titus or Domitian or whoever, these emperors who with great power and might often inflicted suffering upon the people. They didn't take suffering upon themselves, yet the gospel holds out the suffering king. And this is the very reason the book is called a gospel. The other gospels are referred to as gospels because Mark, in the introduction, calls his a gospel. And a gospel, as we've talked about in the ancient world, was an announcement. It was good news about the ascension of a king. You'd have Gospels that heralded the birthdays of the emperors. These these issues of news, good news throughout the empire. These announcements calling for celebrations of the Roman king. And Mark, as we see him, he writes from the city of Rome. He writes in the shadow of all of that king talk or atmosphere or all these announcements. He writes a gospel about his king, the king of kings, King Jesus. And what we're about to begin seeing, if we haven't seen it already, is that the writer of this gospel, John Mark, he displays a wonderful economy of style. He is incredibly fast-paced in what he reveals about the ministry of Jesus. Mark manages to be brief, but at the same time, he says everything that needs to be said. I could probably learn a lot from Mark, right? Some of you are shaking your head. Yeah, you could. But in our third week in the book of Mark, I want to to point, uh, or excuse me, as, as this is our third week in the book of Mark, and to this point in our study, we've seen Mark sort of tee up the major content of the book. The major content of the book is Jesus Christ. And in teeing it up, in the first eight verses, Mark has the readers and the listeners of the gospel prepared to meet the king, prepared to meet Jesus. The first eight verses have been preparatory. Mark writes a stated purpose for the book in verse 1, that it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in verses 2 through through 8, he gives us an explanation of John the Baptist, who was the prophesied herald, who was the forerunner of the king, the one whom the Old Testament Scripture said would be a voice crying from the wilderness, a voice crying, prepare the way of the Lord. That's John the Baptist. And so now, today, in verse 9, enter the king. We'll skip a long introduction. Let's go right into the passage of Scripture. It's Mark 1. We're going to read verses 9 through 13. If you're not already there, turn there as I begin to read. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's Word. And I'm not sure if you were paying close attention as I read, but those five verses, and I'm not overstating this. Preachers tend to overstate things. I'm not overstating this. The five verses I just read contain truths that are bigger than the universe. What I just read is bigger than any idea you've ever thought of. Maybe you didn't hear that, but those five verses, wow. It's a shame your pews don't have a seatbelt, because I think you're going to need one this morning. That's what I'm saying. In these verses, we have the entrance of Christ into Mark's gospel. Verse 9 says, he came. He came. And just to underscore again, the first recipients of Mark's gospel would have been largely Gentile, men and women in Rome. That's who Mark is writing to. And if you're a person living in Rome, you're probably not going to know a whole lot about the geography of the Middle East. You know, that's a region 1,500 miles away from Rome. There's no Google Maps or GPS. You know, the reference tools we have today are just not readily available. So a first century Roman had probably heard of Jerusalem, but he's definitely not going to know where a tiny place like Nazareth is located. That would be like someone from New York, New York City having heard of Pond Creek, Right? You know, that's Nazareth, a small, small village, a a suburb of nowhere. This is where Jesus has come from. So Mark is helping out his audience, and he tells them that Nazareth is in Galilee. It's in the northern part of Israel. It's west of the Sea of Galilee, or what the Romans would have called the Sea of Tiberias. And this is where Jesus comes from. This is his hometown. He's from a backwater hick town called Nazareth. This anointed Savior, this Messiah King. He's not from Rome or Ephesus or Jerusalem or any of the principal cities of the day. He's from Pond Creek. <laughs> He's from Nazareth. Pardon me if i are from Pond Creek. And as Jesus enters into Mark's narrative in these five verses, Mark displays him in three sort of frames, three different frames. We see a frame of identification, then a frame of validation. And then a frame of temptation. Identification, validation, temptation. First, identification. Jesus comes to the Jordan River from Nazareth, from Galilee. Thousands of people from Jerusalem and Judea have been coming to the river to hear and to see this prophet, John the Baptist. Many have been coming to repent and, and, and to, uh, to see themselves baptized by John. Now Jesus, a man from Galilee, comes requesting the same treatment. In Mark, he states things very matter-of-factly. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's what we get from Mark. Matthew and Luke give much fuller descriptions of this scene in their Gospels. Matthew says John protested the idea of baptizing Jesus. Saying appropriately, no, you should baptize me. It's a totally understandable response from John the Baptist. The Apostle John, in his gospel, says that in the midst of the crowds, John the Baptist is the one who identifies and calls out Jesus. He sees him and he says, there he is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All you people who are coming, who are, baptized, or who are, who are repenting and being baptized for the remission of your sins, there's one amongst us who has no sins. He is the spotless Lamb who will take away the sins of the world. But what we know from all four Gospels, this is one of the events recorded in all four Gospels, is that John the Baptist indeed baptized the Lord Jesus. And the question that comes with that is why? If John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, why would Jesus subject himself to baptism? Doesn't the life and work of Jesus hinge on the fact that he was sinless, that he Never sinned? Why would he stand in the place that all these sinners had been standing? This place of guilt and repentance. Why would he count himself amongst them? Jesus was subjecting himself to baptism to make three primary identifications. First, to identify with John the Baptist. To say, yes, this guy is the guy that Isaiah told us about and that Malachi told us would come and prepare the way for the Lord. John, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Just like those being baptized, identified with John as the forerunner, Jesus is identifying with John. Yes, this is the forerunner of the Messiah. Second, he's baptized also to identify with John the Baptist's message. What he's saying is, What this guy is preaching, what he's saying, it is is right on. It is absolutely true. You need to repent. You need to make yourself ready. One is coming. One is coming. And I am the one. And then third, and this is most important, the third reason Jesus was baptized, the third thing he was identifying with, he was baptized to identify with you. Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he, the Messiah, would be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was baptized to identify with you. And it makes sense then. The first action Jesus takes in his ministry was a giant arrow pointing to the whole reason for his ministry, to stand in the place of sinners. That's what he came to do. That's what he's doing in the water with John. He who had no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. He who was without sin submitted to a baptism that was for sinners. His ministry would start standing in the place of sinners in baptism. His ministry would end hanging in the place of sinners on the cross. Like matching bookends in Jesus' ministry. He is in the place of sinners. And I make this connection really for one other reason. It's because of something Mark would write later in the Gospel, Mark chapter 10, verse 38. James and John are jockeying for position. Jesus has called disciples, they are working alongside him. They're really having a hard time understanding exactly what his Messiahship is about. And they're often jockeying for position, they're often wanting to be the first among themselves, they want to be at Christ's right hand when the kingdom comes. They want power. And this request for power from James and John comes right on the heels in Mark chapter 10 of Jesus explaining that he would be put to death. Right on the heels of him saying that they will mock me and they will spit on me and they will flog me and they will kill me. And so when they ask Jesus about the positions of power that they're going to receive, Jesus responds this way. Mark chapter 10, verse 38. He said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? This is Jesus connecting his baptism here in John 1 with his death, with God's judgment. His baptism had identified him, is identifying him with sinners. He would take the judgment sinners, sinners deserve upon himself. Consider 2 Corinthians five twenty one, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might know the righteousness of God in him. Two things are working in that verse. God puts our sin on him. God puts his righteousness on us. What does that really mean? It means simply this. When Jesus died on the cross, God treated him as if he'd lived your life. And God punished him as if your sin was his sin. Now because of that, God the Father then treats you as if you lived Christ's life. When God looks at the cross, he sees you bearing the weight of sin. When he looks at you, he sees Christ covering you with his righteousness. You get Christ's perfect life. That's a summation of Second Corinthians 5:21. And that's what justification means. It means just as if you never sinned. Christ's perfect life. It could be yours. It could be yours. And let me just say to every one of us in this room, that is our greatest need in life and in death the righteousness of Christ. It's the only pathway to eternal life. It's the only pathway to right relationship with God. And it doesn't come through any, any amount of, of jumping through hoops or right behaviors or a really upright and squeaky clean moral lifestyle. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The need we all have to have the slate of our lives wiped clean To have the transgressions of our lives blotted out to have our souls cleansed by the righteousness of christ that is our greatest need and that comes when we put our faith in jesus and the great exchange takes place our sin for christ's righteousness he takes our sin we get his perfection so in his baptism jesus is stepping down he did not need a baptism of repentance. He didn't need to repent on our behalf, but he identifies himself with us. He becomes, as it were, a sinner. He becomes the covenant breaker. He becomes the one who has violated the terms of the contract with God, and it is going to cost him. It is going to cost him death. So this is Jesus right here. This is his public pronouncement of Of his obedience of him saying I am on board with the redemptive purpose of God and it's that obedience that would carry him from this point in the water in the Jordan River being baptized it would carry him all the way to the cross and before we get to the second point just a clarification regarding geography the River Jordan is a very famous location in the Bible if you flip to your maps at the back, you'll, you'll likely come across one pretty quickly that'll have the Jordan River on it. And obviously Jesus was baptized there. Joshua led Israel across it when the Israelites first entered the land. But I don't know what you have in your mind. The, the River Jordan is a stream about 100 feet wide at its widest, about 10 feet deep at its deepest. It flows south from the Sea of Galilee, flows south to the Dead Sea about 105 miles. It's the traditional eastern border of the land of Canaan or of Israel. And I share all that because when you picture it, don't picture some mighty roaring river or even some sort of majestic mountain scene. This is not the Mississippi. This is not the upper Arkansas. It's not even really even the Cimarron River. (laughs) I mean, to call it a river is even sort of a stretch. Skelter Creek, yeah, there we go. But when it says that Jesus was baptized and came up out of the water, everything about that statement says that he was immersed in the water. So it wasn't a sprinkling or a pour. Baptizo, the Greek word, is just almost directly transliterated into English as baptism. It means to dip under. Thus his coming up out of the water. And something miraculous happened as he came out. That's our second point. It's this point of validation second half of verse 14 starts immediately. Immediately. Excuse me, not, not verse 14. I should say verse 11. Immediately. That's one of the most repeated words in the book of Mark. It's used 42 times in the gospel. Only 12 times in the whole rest of the New Testament. It's a word Mark used to keep this narrative moving. Immediately, immediately, immediately. I heard the story of a missionary in Ethiopia. His ministry was in a region... Uh, with a complex system of, of rivers and streams the principal transportation in the area was was boat was by boat and this missionary had a boat that he named Euthys Euthys is the Greek word for immediately and how the boat got his name was this missionary's father read from the Greek New Testament just directly from the Greek and he had come to a place in Mark where the text read Euthys the boat or immediately the boat so the boat got named Euthys Right? So if you have a boat, I don't know if any of you are boat people, but name it that just That's just a great name. I could see it, you know, inscribed on in the back, real nice, Euthys the boat. Makes me want to get a boat. But anyway, immediately, as Jesus comes up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open. And again, I don't know what you picture here, but the only other place in Mark where the phrase torn open is used is in Mark 15, right after the crucifixion when the thick veil of the temple was torn in two. So it's an incredibly dramatic moment there in Mark 15. Because it signifies that the separation between God and man when that, when that curtain, when that veil is torn, that separation is no more. Man has access to God through the faith, through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that veil is, is dramatically ripped in half. It's rent in two. So with the use of that same phrase at Jesus' baptism, I think something equally dramatic has happening. This is not a quaint scene with a beautiful stream and a pristine white dove sort of gently floating down. This is not a quiet or tame moment. There is a divine and utterly holy dimension that's being opened up and revealed here at the baptism of Jesus. And it starts with the tearing open of the heavens. And it continues with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descending on Jesus like a dove, And it's not out of the ordinary for us to equate the Spirit of God to a dove. We see this all the time. And I think that's what makes this scene so gentle and serene when we try to picture it. But what Mark is doing, Mark is doing something amazing here. He's actually taking us back to Genesis 1. Mark is taking us back to the creation account. And in the account of creation, Genesis 1, verse 2, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. But in a widely read Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, it was a translation called the Targums. Many, many, many of the Jews spoke chiefly Aramaic at this time. And so the Targums would have been very, very popular at the time of Jesus. And in the Targums, Genesis 1:2 actually reads, And the Spirit of God was fluttering over the waters like a dove. Now why do I point that out? Because Mark is linking the baptism of Jesus with the creation of the world. Let's keep looking, verse eleven. And so then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. What you have here in Mark one, ten, and eleven is the only time in the New Testament where the dynamic relationship of the Trinity is on full display. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, revealed together, we actually get a window into the interaction of the Godhead. This is this is holy ground. This is a sacred moment. The only other place in Scripture we see the Trinity on display like this, the three persons revealed at the same moment, it's at the creation account. Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, you have God, then you have God's Spirit, and you have God's Word. God is purposing to create all things. The Word, the Son, is the means through which all things are created, and the Spirit is the power by which they are created. Why is this so amazing? Because Mark is intentionally pointing back to Genesis 1, saying the same triune power that created the world is going to redeem and recreate the world. I'm not gonna lie to you, the doctrine of the Trinity is mysterious intellectually, it's very, very challenging. To some, it's sort of like a bad math problem that three equals one and one equals three, you know, it just doesn't add up. But I would say to you, the doctrine of the Trinity, it it is not a contradiction. And it's actually one of the most important details of theology that you may need to grasp. It's really crucial. A.W. Tozer Tozer wrote that the most important thought you have is what you think of when you think about God. And I wonder, how many of you, how many of you, your default way of thinking about God is Trinitarian? Gregory of Nazianus, he's a church father. In the fourth century, he said, I cannot think on the one without quickly being encircled by the splendor of the three. Nor can I discern the three without being straightaway carried back to the one. When he thought about God, he thought about Trinity. The Orthodox teaching on the Trinity basically says that God is one God eternally existing in three persons. So it's not tritheism where we have three separate gods... And it's not modalism or, or universalism where God just manifests himself in different ways, sometimes Father, sometimes Son, sometimes Holy Spirit. No. Orthodox Trinitarian thinking says there is one God in three persons persons who know one another, who love one another, who interact with one another. They exist in relationship to each other, they exist in unity and in equality and in diversity. So to explain the Trinity succinctly is to say, god is not more fundamentally one than he is three and he's not more fundamentally three than he is one it helps me to think of the trinity in two spheres one what one god and then three who's three persons father son and holy spirit and so why is this important i mean thinking about god this way and thinking in grand theological categories and terms sure that that that's fun for for you jay you're kind of theological title tell me why is this important well when Jesus came out of the water God's voice was heard saying you are my beloved son beloved son there is this unquenchable dynamic of love that exists in the Godhead the three persons in the Godhead have eternally existed in a love relationship in an eternal community of love and adoration and grace and glory. So when God said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he's saying that has always been the case. This is not all of a sudden, I'm not all of a sudden pleased with you, Jesus, because you got baptized. I've always been pleased with you, Jesus. That's the very nature of our Trinitarian relationship. We love each other. You are my beloved And this is crucial to think through, because if God were not Trinity, if he were not one and three, he would not eternally possess the attribute of love. If he were not triune, he would not be able to say, you and I would not be able to say that God is love. He might still be great or powerful or mighty or majestic, but he would not fundamentally be love, because love needs another person in order to express itself. His triuneness is His very essence. So to say God is love is to say He's Trinity. And by seeing that love expressed as God envelops the Son with praise there at His baptism, we actually see why it is the Son has come. And the Son has come to get us into the love of God. To get us into that love that so necessarily defines his nature. To get us into the dance that is the triune nature of God. And I borrow the term dance from C.S. Lewis. Lewis once once said of God, in Christianity God is not an impersonal thing nor a static thing. He's not even just one person but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama almost. If you will not think of me a reverent a kind of dance. What that means that God is, in essence, is that God is relational. Relational. Three persons in in dynamic orbit about each other, a dance of love and delight and adoration. Three persons always loving, always praising, always giving glory to each other, always deferring. This is an utterly unique aspect to Christianity. We could never have made this up. The Trinity? Really? Us? No. We could have never made this up. The human mind could never devise this. The triune nature of God. The eternally established love relationship of these persons in the Trinity. My point, my point, God didn't create mankind because he needed something to love, he already had perfect love in the context of the Trinity. He didn't create to get love, he created to give it, to draw others into it. That's why I said the Son has come to get us into the love of God. It was Jonathan Edwards who reasoned, the ultimate reason that God creates is not to remedy some lack in God, but to extend that perfect internal communication of the triune God's goodness and love. God created to extend Himself to us. Not because He needed us, but because His glory and His greatness is so vast and wonderful, it necessitates extension. And that's what Jesus accomplishes for those who believe a restoration of the love relationship that God desires to give those that He has made in His image. A relationship that was instituted and that was held on with Adam in the garden for an instant but because of his fall, has had to be restored. And by providing this great disclosure of the Godhead and the way in which the Godhead loves and endorses one another, Jesus Jesus is being validated at his baptism. A voice from heaven is, cons- is confirming that little phrase at the end of verse 1, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He's the Son of God who is God's beloved, and who has eternally pleased God the Father. Which gets us to the third point, the point of temptation. Verses 12 and 13. So God the Father, he has expressed affection for the Son. The Spirit has enveloped the Son with power, this power that he's going to take and then use to carry out his ministry. And in verse 12, the Spirit immediately, there's our word again, immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Now, one would think that Jesus would get baptized, he would get the Spirit, and then he would just go to Jerusalem and take over. Right? Nope. He goes to the wilderness to be tempted. Remember in Genesis, the Spirit moves over the face of the waters, God speaks the world into being, humanity is created, history is launched, what's the very next thing that happens? Satan tempts the first human beings, Adam and Eve in the garden. Here in Mark, the spirit, the water, God speaks, a new humanity is to be created. Immediately, the pattern continues with Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Again, Mark is recapitulating human history. Verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. The number 40 in Scripture is almost always connected to testing. So before Jesus can commence his ministry, he has to pass. He has to, he has to work through this time of testing. So he's in the wilderness. Again, Mark is brief. He doesn't tell us about Jesus fasting or about the kind of temptation that is coming against him. These are all things the other gospel writers do. But I think Mark is wanting us to see a vivid contrast, again because he's rooting, he's rooting this in creation, a vivid contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. Jesus is often referred to in Scripture as the second Adam, the second representative of mankind. And in the the garden, the first Adam was told by God, obey me about the tree. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die. God was saying, because you love me, don't eat from the tree. To be in relationship with me, obey me about the tree. Do that and you will live what happened? Adam didn't obey. The serpent came, Satan came, he tempted them, and he and Eve failed the test, and the whole human race has been failing ever since. And so a similar scene plays out with Jesus in the wilderness. We know from Matthew's account that Satan is tempting Jesus away from obedience and submission to the Father. He's calling Jesus to exert his own authority, his own power, and his own prerogative. And Satan, the adversary, which is what Satan means, would continue this assault on Jesus his whole life and his whole ministry. And if you've read the whole story, you know that Satan's attacks on Jesus come to a climax three years later in another garden. Not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that garden, God was saying to Jesus exactly what he had said to Adam. Obey me about the tree. Only this time, the tree was a cross. Obey me about the tree, Jesus. And Jesus did obey. And Jesus did die. And he died in our place so that we may live, so that the curse would be reversed, and the creation would be redeemed and brought into the very life of the triune God. That is our greatest need. That is our greatest need, to be brought back into the life of the God in whose image we've been created. We will not know joy or peace or contentment or satisfaction until we know God. Until we connect with the great lover, God, his triuneness, and our place in the dance there with him. Just to conclude, a couple of things. The passage concludes with saying that Jesus is with the wild animals and the angels are there ministering to him. And this connects with the audience again. The audience was Roman. And they're hiding and they're worshiping in the catacombs outside of Rome. And again, Mark is writing just after 60 AD, probably somewhere between 60 and 65, persecution is ramping up in the empire. Nero hates Christians. He is diabolical in his approach to persecuting them. And what's often taking place is he is letting wild beasts, dogs, lions, all sorts of animals devour Christians, whether in the Colosseum or somewhere else. And so Mark just writes this little, this little sort of note saying, you know what? The Savior, the King, Jesus, he was in a wilderness of suffering as well, and he was surrounded by all these wild animals, and he, and I don't know how exactly to explain this, I don't know what their ministry looked like, but the angels were there ministering to him, and he was taken care of. So Mark is just connecting with this audience saying, you know what? Your persecution, your suffering, the wild animals that may come for you know that you've got angels ministering to you. And in this passage, like I said, man, this passage is bigger than the universe in my mind. We have this identification that Jesus is placing himself in the place of sinners. He's identifying with you. Though perfect in his obedience, He says, count me a sinner. Count me with them. And then this this great validation that he can do this, that he can take on this task, this ministry, because he is the Son of God. And he's given the full power of God when that Spirit descends upon him. And then in his temptation, he did what man failed to do. Jesus withstood the test. Jesus withstood the test because you don't withstand the test. He dies a vicarious death, but it's his perfect life that provides us with righteousness. Jesus could die in our place, but without his righteousness, we would still have a great need. He has given us his righteousness by his perfect obedience, by his submission to baptism, by his enduring the great temptation. Next week, Jesus begins to preach. We get to hear from the King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for what you teach us from it. God, just enrich our hearts and minds with the truth that we've thought through today. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill in all the gaps that I've left open. And I've left open a lot. And God, that uh, each of us today would, would see the way in which You are calling us into your life. That we we would see the reality of you and your existence as Trinity. We would see the love relationship that you share. That you never put yourself at the center of things, but you're always orbiting around the persons in the Godhead. God, and you are calling us to live the same way. We are miserable people when we're at the center of things. We need you at the center. We need to orbit around you. We need to dance with you in whatever that looks like. If anybody is here today and they've never given their heart to you, they don't know you, trusting in Christ is something they've never really done. I pray that today, by seeing that you have come to identify with sinners and stand in their place, Lord, that they would lay hold of the exchange, that they would give up their sin in exchange for your righteousness. That is, that is such an easy equation. Bring us all to that place. Give us a richer understanding of that. Thank you for this this time together. Play all this in Christ's name. Amen.